And it's good to see everybody here on such a beautiful day. Uh, I'll pray and we'll, we'll start in. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do praise your name. We thank you that we can gather together under, again, your means of grace. And we do uh, thank you that we can do this in freedom. And we do pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who cannot. Uh, Lord, we also pray for those who can't find fellowship. We ask, Lord, that we would be a means by which they can. And, Lord, we ask that you would open your word to us, that you would be our teacher and help us plumb the fathoms and the depths of your greatness and your riches and your word. We ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you recall, last time we were in 1 Corinthians 5, we saw that Paul had rebuked the Corinthians for not expelling the immoral man. And that was a response to the report of Chloe's people. Now this is the second report section, as as it were, that he's addressing. In other words, there was a report that there was litigation among the church. And so Paul is going to be handling that. Now, the big picture that I want you to see is Paul is concerned that the Corinthian Christians are not able to even judge simple matters among themselves. And in fact, they have to take their cases before the pagan courts, and therefore they're bringing disrepute upon them. And who are they? Well, they're the church of the living God, and therefore they're bringing disrepute on the name of the Lord. And so Paul's zeal here is ultimately, as we'll find out, I think, for the zeal of the Lord in his name. And so that's the section that we're in. Litigation brings disrepute upon the Corinthians. This is a big problem. And so in verse 1, Paul says this. He says, Does any of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Now, interesting, we, we sometimes miss this in our English versions, but the term dare is actually thrown forward in the Greek. And the only thing that word order really matters for in the Greek is emphasis. Okay, so dare is thrown forward. I'm just going to throw this up here to show you so you can see where it is in a sentence. There is talma, and that's dare. So you can see it's thrown forward. So what Paul is saying is, how dare you do this? He's emphasizing that. Now, why is it so galling to him? Again, you're going to see because God's name is at stake. You rascals can't even settle your own disputes. How dare you? That's the idea. Now, the other thing I want to point out is a few of these uh, terms that he uses are actually technical terms in extra-biblical literature. For instance, this pragma ekon. Ekon is to have. And so it's this idea of having a case. The pragma would be a case. And it's literally a technical term for having a lawsuit. The reason why that's important is there's been some debate as to what this passage is about. This really proves it's about a lawsuit. Okay, so in this slide, what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be laying out what the issue is in this section. Okay, so we know it's about a lawsuit. And the next thing that I want you to see is this krinesthe. Bob has talked about the idea of krino, judgment. This is the infinitive form. And in the middle voice, it has a technical meaning of to take someone to court. Okay, that's how it's used in the society of the day. So for sure, this is about taking a lawsuit to court. Okay. Now, this is what galls Paul so. Listen to what it, it's not the fact that they're just having a, a lawsuit among themselves, but it's before the unrighteous and not before the saints. That's what's bothering him so. And so here's the issue as far as we can tell. There was probably more than likely a man who swindled, we'll call him man A, he swindles man B. Man B, they're both believers, man B isn't content just to be wronged but he takes the case before the pagan courts. And so it's a complete defeat at every level 
for the Corinthian church. You have one Christian who's swindling another, bad enough. Then you have another Christian who's not willing to tolerate being wronged. And he should be willing to do so because he's part of the eschatological people of God. He's the one who has an eternal reward to look forward to. So Paul's going to be saying, why wouldn't you rather be wronged later on? You'll see that. So that's the issue, and it makes the Christian church look very bad in the eyes of the world. So that's what Paul is to go on to say. He says, believers will actually judge the world. Verses 2 through 3. He says, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So notice Paul is using a series of questions, and it's a a form of rhetoric. What he's doing is he's backing the Corinthians into a corner where the only logical answer is, boy, we've done really something stupid. (laughs) Okay, that's what they're going to come up with. We shouldn't have taken our, our cases before the pagans. We should have handled it ourselves. Now, what's interesting is this idea of judging angels and even judging the world When Jesus comes back, my friends, he is going to set up, it's a political kingdom. Right now, our world is in turmoil because there's never been a politician that's been godly. But one day, the king of kings will set up a throne that is perfect. Okay? And that is the the Davidic kingdom. In fact, in uh, Ezekiel 37, we see the great promise that David, it says, will be prince over them for how long? Forever. Forever. And we know that can't apply to David because he's... He's dead right now. So it ultimately applies to Christ who is in his resurrected body currently. Okay. Um, now, I just want to show you a passage that talks about this idea of the saints judging the world. And we see it right away in Daniel 7. So this comes in the Old Testament. Daniel seven twenty one through 22, Daniel wrote this. He says, I kept looking and that horn, this is the Antichrist, was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Okay, so we see it all the way back in Daniel that you and I will one day reign in a kingdom with Christ who is the leader in the entire world. Okay, and so again, the the common misconception I think the world has of people who go to heaven is that we sit around strumming harps and it's really boring. That's not going to be the case. Okay, we're going to be reigning with Christ, not because of who we are, but because of who he is and what he's done for us. Um, who had the Revelation 2, 26 or 27? Was that, um, oh, that was Robert. I thought I'd cut out the middleman and just give the guy the mic the passage. <laughs> Revelation 2, 26 and 27. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Yeah. So here, because Christ has received that authority, you and I will reign with him. And that's the benefit, again, of being in Christ. So as bleak as things look now, friends, one day we will be reigning with him. So the idea then is if we're going to do that, can't we, and he's, of course, talking to the Corinthians, can't they simply adjudicate among themselves some simple matters like these lawsuits one man wronging another they're going to judge angels and yet they can't handle issues among themselves so the question arises why ask pagans to judge you now when we get into verse four we have a translation issue and by the way who in does anybody have an niv version in here anybody um okay good we have some niv um if we needed it the the issue is really between the niv and some other versions okay like the nasb 
And it's, a, it's actually a tough issue. The question is, is Paul asking a sarcastic question in this coming verse, or is he issuing an adamant imperative? Okay, so it's either going to be a question or an imperative, a command. Okay, and let me put up the New American Standard Version, 1 Corinthians 6.4. Paul says this. This translates it this way. So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church. So you see the rub here is that Paul, in this version of the translation, it would be that he can't believe that they're actually putting themselves under the pagan courts of unbelievers. Okay, And that would be a rhetorical question which would make the Corinthians say, well, boy, that is a dumb idea. We shouldn't be doing that. Okay, The other possibility is, as the NIV has it in verse 4, where it says, therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. Now, if it's this imperative, notice he's saying, well, you should have set even men of little account in the church, that is, believers. So really what we're trying to do is figure out, is Paul talking about unbelievers? Is he asking the question, how dare you take your case before the unbelievers? Or is he demanding that believers try the case in the court? Okay, so that's what we have to wrestle with. Well, let me give you four reasons why I think the New American Standard Bible has it right, okay? Because we have to be able to settle these translation issues. We have to know what the word is said. And I'm going to have these, in, by the way, in descending order. The first one isn't, to me, very... I came up with it, too, and I'm embarrassed. I, about a week later, I thought, you know, that's not very compelling. <laughs> but I'll throw it up there, and I'll show you why it's not that compelling. First of all, notice the, one of the debates is between it's unbelievers and believers and between law courts and disputes. And I think, personally that this term criterion would be better rendered courts. This term is only used three times in the New Testament. And James, in chapter 2, verse 6, for sure it has to be courts there because of the context. Well, in Corinthians, it's used in 1 Corinthians 6.2 and also in 6.4. It's really hard to determine whether it's disputes or it's the courts. Well, being that the only other outside of Paul that we have, the only other form of it is in James and it's the courts, I think that that lends itself that it should be better rendered courts. However, that's very weak. That's not a lot to go on. And if that was all we had to go on, you could say it could go either way. Okay? But the, the evidence gets more powerful here. Number two is this term kathitso. And, and here it's kathitsete, which is the second person plural, which means, I, I think, being the fact that this is used, it means it's impossible to have an imperative, okay? So in other words, this word that you're seeing here is at the end of a sentence, and it's in the indicative, okay? Now, what's the indicative? The indicative means something is happening. An imperative is commanding. It would be, Bob, you do this. But the indicative, that's an imperative, and the indicative is just be saying, Bob did something, okay? So here's the point. The NIV would have you believe that this in the indicative which is in the very last word of the sentence, is actually an imperative. That's not only extremely unlikely, it's never seen in the, in the New Testament. So that's very compelling that this can't be an imperative. Are you with me there? Okay, that's very compelling. This can't be an imperative, and therefore we're left with it, it must be a question. All right? A uh, third piece of evidence is it's unlikely Paul would use a pejorative for believers. Think about what he's calling the believers. The term in the Greek literally means a despised ones. Well, is Paul going to talk about the believers, that is, those who have been regenerated by Christ, to be despised ones, okay? And what's more, why would you want 
the church to adjudicate its decisions among those who have the least esteem within the body. Of course, you wouldn't. And, and what's more, Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, one of the big issues is that there are two different groups of Christians, those who are wealthy and they're abusing those who are looked down upon, those who are of lesser repute, as it were, and therefore there, and there shouldn't be those things. There shouldn't be division in the church. We're one people, you see. And so Paul isn't going to make divisions within the church by doing that. Now, there's one other word that I think is key here, and it's this term even. Notice even isn't in the original text. In fact, if you have the NIV, you'll see it italicized. And the reason why I think that's important is you could understand Paul's logic if he was saying, you rascals, even appoint the lowest among you to oversee these matters. That's how trivial they are, okay? But he's not saying that. There's no even there. So he's literally just saying, Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges men who are despised in the assembly. That's literally what he's saying. Well, that doesn't seem to... Why would he do that? Why would you, first of all, call the brethren despised, and why would you want the lowliest in the assembly to judge the matters? Because therefore, you're going to create more dissension. So I think that's powerful too. And the final reason why I think we know it's a question is because that's Paul's logic. Notice there's two sets of questions, and it starts in verse 2. And it's, do you not know that we will judge the world? Okay? And if this is true, and I, let me in fact read this, verse 2, or do you not know that we will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest courts? So the then would be, then why are you not competent to judge the smallest in the, in the smallest courts? Okay? Then we get to the next question, do you not know that C? Well, what is that? Well, that you will judge the angels. Okay? not to mention the fact that you're going to judge even the trivial matters of this world, okay? And if you're going to judge the trivial matters of this world, then why don't you have anybody that's capable, or, or I should say, then why are you sitting under the judgment of the pagans, okay? That's how his questions go. Well, now notice if you have the NIV version, and this is from Gordon Fee, I think it's very astute. The NIV has an imperative rather than a question, therefore breaks the logic. So here... There, if you had the NIV version, it's a, not a question, but a statement, okay? And therefore, you break the logic of the questions, you see? And therefore, I think the New American Standard is correct. So what Paul is saying in that passage is, how dare you take your case and have it settled before the pagans? He's not demanding that Christians do it. By implication, you could say he is, but that's not what's being stated in verse 4. Does that make sense? Okay. All right, now we'll move on here in verses 5 through 6. We see that the Corinthians bring shame upon themselves. He says, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers? Remember that term wise? That was the term that the Corinthians were boasting in, that they had Sophia. And so now Paul is taking and he's turning on his head against them. The Corinthians bragged about their Sophia. Remember in verse 18 of chapter 3, they were boasting in their wisdom, weren't they? Well, now Paul turns it on them and he says, if you're so wise, how come you can't adjudicate among yourselves? That's what he's doing, okay? The other thing is, I think that irks Paul again, is that it's before unbelievers. Oh, by the way, the term decide here, diacrino. Remember Bob had talked about the difference between crino, that is judge, and diacrino. Well, diacrino is used here and it means to render a decision and it has to do with decisions more than likely in everyday life, okay? Whereas crino has been used thus far for go to court, 
and it has to do with the eschatological judgment. So because Paul shifts from crino to diacrino, he's talking about judging simple matters in everyday life. And you and I as Christians, if we're going to judge angels, why can't we settle simple disputes among ourselves? That's the idea, okay? And again, at the end of the day, what bothers Paul so much is that it's, the Corinthians brought shame upon themselves and the reputation of their God. How? Well, because they were bringing their filthy laundry before the world. That's the problem, okay? Now, I want to point out Titus. I had talked about this book quite a bit, but I want to show you in Titus where Paul demonstrates concern for God's glory. And every single thing that we should do should be for his glory. If you recall the third commandment in Exodus 12:7, it says, Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Bob had given a sermon about that. And remember how it's not just taking the Lord's name as an oath and then violating the oath, although that's primary, but it also extends to every single believer who calls himself a Christian or one who was under the banner of Yahweh. It's to live in such a way that you bring disrespect upon the king and his kingdom. That's the idea, okay? And so that's why Paul demonstrates such concern. So, for instance, in Titus 2, 6 through 10, listen to what he says. And he's admonishing Titus, who is the leader of the church at Crete. He says, Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that, now we have a purpose statement. Remember, anytime you see a so that, you have a purpose statement. So that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Well, who's us? Well, the body of Christ. And who are, who's the body of Christ representing? The Lord. Okay, and that's why it's so important. Well, then he goes on, he says, Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. And then we have another purpose statement so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. So again, what's, what matters most is the glory of God. And certainly bond slaves, if anybody has a complaint and a beef in this life, it would be a slave, right? And yet Paul is saying, no, don't let them do that because there's something matters more. And that's the name of the living God. You Corinthians, when he's back, going back to Corinth, the problem with them is they don't realize that there are a people who are, and I hate to use the phrase, I just know how else to say it, they're the eschatological people of God, meaning they have a promise in the end. Okay? But they're living as if all they need, that is Sophia and wisdom and power, they have it now. They're not living like there's a tomorrow. They have an over-realized eschatology, and Paul is saying, no, you're the people who are going to rule the world one day, and yet you're living just like the world. And so he has to beat, again, Corinth out of the Corinthians. Why? Because they're bringing disrepute upon God's name. So now we're going to see that Paul is going to take on the plaintiff. And it's very interesting how he does this. Verse 7. Now remember the plaintiff was man A. I'm sorry, that'd be man B. Man B was the one who was wronged, right? But he's bringing the lawsuit in the pagan courts. 1 Corinthians 6, 7, Paul says, Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Notice it says it's already a defeat for you. Why would it be already a defeat for them? Well, it's simple. Even if perceived justice prevailed, that is, the man who was wronged, he was swindled, even if he wins his lawsuit, it's already a defeat for the whole body 
And if it's a defeat for the whole body because they're bringing their dirty laundry before the world, then they've already brought disrepute upon the name of Christ, and it's a complete defeat for them. So even if the man wins, Paul is saying, you haven't won anything. It's a complete defeat for you. The other thing I want to point out is very interesting. I would think that this would be singular, but he actually puts this in the plural, the you that I have highlighted. You as second person plural demonstrating the corporate responsibility. So Paul has this notion of corporate solidarity, the idea of the one and the many. Yes, it's a battle of two men, man A and man B, but it affects the whole community. Why weren't the Corinthians Christian enough to say, you two men are destroying the reputation of our God and we will not tolerate it? But nobody stood in. So it was a defeat for the entire body. And we see that even in the plural that Paul uses. And now Paul takes on the instigator. Oh, before I move in uh, to verse 8, let me just point out something. Notice here, it says, why not rather be wronged? That's passive. Why not rather be defrauded? He's saying that to the plaintiff. You're going to take note now in verse 8, we can prove that he's talking about the instigator because he'll use the active voice of those verbs. Verse 8, he says, on the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Okay, so notice the wrong and defraud here. Both verbs are in the active as opposed to being wronged and being defrauded in verse 7. This proves Paul is aiming at the one who initiated the wrongdoing. Okay, so now you had a believer who is slandering and defrauding. I I shouldn't say slander. He's defrauding and swindling. That's the term I wanted to use, swindle. (laughs) I like that term, swindle. He's swindling his brother. Okay, that's vile. But again, I mean, how bad can it be that you swindle a brother? But again, Paul uses the plural, you yourselves, because again, the whole community is responsible. Some scholars think that the guys who are doing this, the man A and man B, may be leaders in the congregation. So think about it. It would be like two elders within a church that are one swindles the other one, and the other one sues, and they bring it to the pagan courts. It'd be like taking it to Minneapolis and your name of your church is in the paper and it's your dirty laundry is being aired day after day. That's kind of what's going on. But it's more egregious probably in Corinth because this is it. I mean, this is a pagan society and this is the only light in that dark area. Okay? It's not like you have just you know 77 different churches down the, on the street corner. This is it. And so the people are looking at these guys saying, wow, They can't even handle simple disputes among themselves. That's why Paul is so incensed. So now Paul gives his warning, verses 9 through 10. He says, Or do you not know, and notice the questions are continuing, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, now I'm actually going to go through this sin list because I want to point out a few things about these different sins. And I want to spend some time with the effeminate and homosexuals, not because necessarily they're any more egregious of a sin than any other, but because in our society today, people are saying they're not sin. Okay, and that's what's so egregious among, to me, the homosexual movement. Friends, my sin will get me to hell every bit as much as their sin but I'm willing to call it sin. And, and that's the issue, okay? So what we have to do is prove that that's exactly... There's debate, believe it or not, whether or not Paul is against homosexuality in the New Testament. We'll refute that notion that there's even a question. Let's start off talking about sexual sin in general. It's pornos. That's where we get, again, the term pornography. 
And it specifically in the New Testament, it has to do with prostitution, okay? But it ends up being kind of the tag term for sexual sin in general in the New Testament, okay? So in other words, if you were on the street corner in Corinth and you used that term, people would think you're talking about the prostitutes in general, getting a prostitute. But the New Testament writers use it as sexual immorality in general, okay? That's the idea. So it starts very broad. Now Paul moves to idolaters, okay? And that's anybody, of course, who makes a false image. But what's interesting is that's not just limited to making a statue of whatever type of material, but it's anyone who has a different God than the God that has revealed himself in the scriptures. And so who is an idolater in a real sense is anyone who hasn't trusted in Jesus Christ because they have built a God in their own image. And so, friends, this is a a sin that every single person outside of those who are in Christ are engaging in daily. In fact, they're heaping up wrath that's accruing interest upon it because they have rejected the God who has revealed himself in the scriptures. What I want you to see here is when you looked at those who are idolaters, this isn't just people who are making images. This is everybody outside of Christ, okay? Because everybody has made either a God in their own image or they make themselves into God, right? And that's, remember, the original sin, autonomy. You will be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. And Eve bought into that, didn't she, in Adam. And they said, that sounds pretty good. And they became self-lawgivers. So they made themselves gods, and we're seeing that today. Adulterer, moikoi, this is a married person who cheats, okay, whether it be a man or a woman. Okay, so now you have sexual sin in general up here. Now it's a married person who cheats. Now we come to homosexual, and this term malakoi, it means the passive homosexual. This would be the one who acts, if you're the guy, you'd act like a girl, okay? And so this would literally be the effeminate one. Now, the reason why I point this out, and I don't mean to be making a big deal of it, but this next term for homosexuals, this has been debated, I guess you might say, among scholarly circles. There's a man named Boswell, and his claim, he's a scholar, and he claims that this term is not the term that's used in the culture of the day for homosexual. And so he tries to claim that Paul isn't speaking out against homosexuality. The problem is when Paul puts both Malakoi and this together, he's talking about both the passive homosexual, the one who acts like the woman, and the one who acts like the man. And so together, the two terms are devastating that he's talking about homosexuality in general. And of course, we know Paul talks about what he thinks of homosexuality in Romans 1, 26 through, through 27. It's no secret that this is a sin before Paul. And so, friends, those who are trying to get around the notion that Paul is talking about homosexuality really don't have a leg to stand on. And the only reason they want to do so is they want to call sin good in our culture today. Okay, That's what's going on. I remember I was a fairly new airline pilot when I flew with a flight attendant who was gay. And I remember sitting at, there's a, TGIF, I think it was, at the Minneapolis airport. And I remember it was him and I, we sat down for dinner, and I wanted to witness to this guy. And nobody else would want to even sit with him because, you know, <laughs> you wouldn't want anybody to think that you're, you know, pinch hitting or batting for the other team or whatever you want to say. Are you with me? <laughs> okay. I don't know how to gently say some of these things. But I, I, um, I, I'm just saying I wanted to sit, I wanted to witness to this man. And I remember, i never forget, we were, before we could even order, he looked at me and he said, you think what I do is sinful, don't you? 
and he knew that I was a Christian. I said, yes, I do. But I said, let me just tell you, my sin will get me to hell every bit as much as yours does. But I said, the difference between you and I is I'm willing to call my sin, sin. Friends, that's the problem with homosexuality today. The liberal Christians are wrong. They think you and I as conservative evangelicals are just beating up on the poor homosexuals and as if we just think that their sin is the only sin that matters. No, we're not. But what we are saying is that how dare anyone call sin righteousness, right? That's what they're wanting. Their idea of tolerance is the notion that you and I not only you know, don't physically abuse them, but we have to approve and give our own applause to their behavior. Well, we cannot because the wrath of God abides upon them. We must be honest and say, no, your sin is sin. My sin was sin. Your sin is sin. And so that's what Paul is saying. All these people are endangered of going to hell and they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so there's no way around it, friends. Homosexuality is a sin in, in, in any of its forms. Okay. Now we'll move on to um, a kleptase, those who steal. Of course, you've heard of the term uh, kleptomania. Right? And kleptomania, of course, would be stealing, right? People who can't stop. It's a, it's a syndrome or something, I guess. But in the Old Testament, the New Testament, it's called sin. And uh, I remember listening to a guy who taught about the Old Testament. And he said, in real sense, every single sin or commandment, I should say, from the fifth commandment on is really about not stealing. So, for instance, when you say, thou shall not murder, you're stealing someone's life. If you slander somebody, move away from the, just the Ten Commandments. If you slander someone, you're, what are you doing? You're stealing their reputation. Okay? If you're coveting, you end up stealing someone's, uh, you know, their possessions. So it all revolves around stealing, stealing someone's life, stealing what rightfully doesn't belong to you. And, of course, that's wicked and evil. Let me just move into the last ones here. Covetousness. Of course, we have that in the Ten Commandments. It's the last one, the Tenth Commandment. Those who want more is literally what it means. We have drunkards, those who drink too much. Now, notice I highlight too much. And the reason I put that on there is because we have legalists oftentimes in the church who will say all drinking is prohibited. No, it's not. Drinking, in fact, is often done. Paul says, what to Timothy? Take a little wine for the stomach. We know Jesus drank wine. The problem is the abuse of it where we drink too much. Okay. The idea then, too, is you lose your faculty, you lose your your uh, reasoning. Then we have those who slander, the loiteros. This term is especially um, poignant, I think, today. Slander is where someone accuses other people of a vile action with no evidence. Okay, you're lying about them and you have no evidence to back it up. You just destroy or steal their reputation from them. And again, I brought this up a few weeks ago, but I see it time and time again in our culture today. The Tea Party people. Okay, whatever you think of them, in the culture today, they're just all racist. Well, why? Well, because the left-wing media says they're racist. Why? Because they disagree with the policies of Barack Obama. Okay? Well, that's slander. Okay? And again, I'm not getting political. I'm getting theological. They have entered into the realm of theology. And what I'm saying is, how dare people slander a whole group of people? Don't they know that that's against the Word of God? Don't they know that they're stealing a man's reputation? Don't they know that they're sinning against God? And of course they don't, because they don't care what the word of God says, and that's the problem. President Carter, he said the only reason why people disagree with Barack Obama is because they're racist. I saw the interview. It was him and uh, Brian Williams. It was on, I think, NBC. That's who Brian Williams works for. And that was the former president of the United States calling a whole group of people racist when he has no evidence for it. Friends, if we're going to use those terms, we better have evidence of it. 
Because we do two things. One is we diminish what racism really is. And the second thing is we're stealing someone's reputation or a whole group. So, friends, it's very wicked, and we're seeing it go on and on today. And it's, it, people don't even, it's not even on their radar screen that that's sinful. Oh, yeah, they're a racist, or they're a Holocaust denier, or they're this, they're that. And you can see how wicked our society is becoming, how reprobate it is. It doesn't even bother them to do so. Uh, swindlers. Now, here's what's so ironic. This is the harpox. Now, Paul has given a devastating list of sins, and then he comes to the end and he lists the sin that the Corinthian Christian, man A, had engaged in. So can you imagine that Christian reading this or hearing this, and all of a sudden his name or what he has done, in a sense, is linked with all these other sins? As now he's been put in this pile. He's the one who carries off someone's material by force or swindles them out of their resources now realize carry off by force doesn't just mean to do so at the threat of arms okay it can also be done in the courts or by trickery or something to that effect we saw a case of this in new york city there was a asian fellow who had started a laundromat business a great american just starting up a laundry business and he had screwed up a judge's order Something, you know, his tie had a, you know, fell apart or whatever the case was. This judge came in in New York City and said, I'm not happy with my dry cleaning and I want all my money back. Well, the man tried to make amends and so forth. Well, the point is the judge ends up taking this guy to court and the thing was stacked against this poor business owner. This is a, this is a case probably two years ago. And the poor man that had the business ended up losing everything. That would be harpox. Okay, in the eyes of God, this man... He was plundered. It was carried off by force. He was swindled out of everything he had because a judge wanted to put it to him because he had more power. That would be harpox. So my point is, is this isn't just if somebody comes up with a gun or, you know, this is using any means to swindle somebody. Okay, and so we see it today. And this should, it should outrage people. And, of course, outrage is quickly leaving our society. But nonetheless, that's exactly what Christian man A was doing to Christian man B. And so he was guilty of not inheriting the kingdom of God. But this applies to all Christians, and that's why Paul has to go on to say this. In verse 11, he says, such were some of you. That was, so let me just stop there. The Christians who are at Corinth, the list that you just read, that was who they were. Who they were, past tense. But now what? He says, but you were washed but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. The point Paul is making is start living like who you really are. Positionally, you have been washed. Positionally, you've been sanctified. You've been justified. That's all been done, but you're not acting like it. That's the point. They're still, remember last time we were together, they're still looking back to Egypt and they're living like they're in Egypt. They're not living like they're already in the promised land. Okay, and that's why he's taking them to account. Now, very interesting in this passage, we actually see it. Verse 11 is a powerful Trinitarian passage. And let me show you why. Notice it says up here, you were washed. And this is actually in the middle voice. But in the middle voice, there's no passive for washed. So it's really functioning as a passive. Then you were sanctified and you were justified. All of these are in the passive. And it lends itself, therefore, to the question, who did it? Who did the washing? Who did the sanctification? Who did the justification? Well, God must have done it, you see. And by the way, this term sanctification, remember Bob has talked about this numerous times. There's really two types of sanctification. One would be the process by which you and I are made more like Christ. That's a process that starts after our conversion. But there's also the sanctification 
whereby you and I are set apart for God's purposes, and it's really akin or synonymous with election. Okay, And so that's how it's being used here. They were sanctified. They were set apart. So the idea there is then that God did these things. But notice it's in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So the Father is the one who is behind this. But notice it's in the sphere of the Son. So remember we've talked probably ad nauseum to many of you. But we've talked about the dative of sphere. You're either in the Lord or you're in the camp of Satan. Correct? Well, here, all their salvation was in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was in his camp. And I think this in would probably be better rendered with a by. It's the same preposition. These, that is an an in Greek, and that's an n. And they're both data prepositions, but I think it would be better rendered by because that's normally how it's used. In other words, you can be in the Spirit, but if you're in Christ, it's usually by the Spirit. Why? Well, 1 Corinthians 12.3, no one can say that Jesus Christ is Lord except what? By the Spirit. Okay, that's the idea. And so what's neat here, my friends, is we see the whole Trinity is in action. We see the Father is doing what? Well, he's doing the election. And we see perhaps that the Holy Spirit is doing the regeneration. And then, of course, it's in the sphere of the Son where the justification happens. And so this is a great Trinitarian passage. Not so just says I, little Eric Dalma, but the great Gordon Fee sees it the same way. This is a great passage that shows that our God has, in fact, saved us. And we had nothing to do with it. Okay, so again, Paul is saying to the Corinthians, you've got to start acting like who you really are. Act like this, in fact, has occurred to you. Paul's again pointing out that the Corinthians must start living like they are, in fact, who they are, that is, believers in Christ. So let's move to some application. I have just two points. The first one is this. It's better to be wrong than to bring disrepute upon Christ and his church. And again, this is a battle in our culture today because everything is predicated on personal happiness. But you and I are the people that must remember that our promise is in heaven and later, of course, on this earth as we reign with Christ. Our reward is future. It's not necessarily here and now. And so we have to be willing to take loss, even at a personal level, sometimes for the sake of the king and his kingdom especially when we're dealing with fellow believers. Why? Because we don't want to air our laundry before a world that's perishing so that we'd bring disrespect upon the name of our Lord. And I'm going to give you a passage that I think was in the back of Paul's mind. And the reason I say Matthew 5 is in the back of Paul's mind is because we know in, for instance, Romans chapter 12, Paul talks about not repaying evil for evil. In fact, making room for God's vengeance Well, why would he say that? Well, more than likely, he's borrowing off of Matthew 5, the Lord's teaching. That's where he's getting it from. He's not just making it up. Now, I'm going to set up Matthew 5 for you because I want to apply this and show you how it's been misapplied and I think how we should apply it. And I'm going to just talk about this passage. I think there's been no greater passage that's been twisted and tortured than this passage. And I'll just show you. I don't have, by the way, I don't have all of the answers to this passage. It's a very difficult passage but I'll give you what I do have and and see what you think of it. Verses 38 through 41, this is the Sermon on the Mount. The Lord says this. He says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now let me just stop there. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was a principle called lex talionis. And originally it was established to limit the amount of punitive damages one could want or ask for. In other words, if you lost your foot, you couldn't kill a guy because he took your foot. So it was to limit these clans from taking 
uh, retributive justice in their own hands and going beyond what, they, what the damage is inflicted. Okay? So it was only an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But what you'll see, what's interesting about this passage is notice Jesus says, you have heard it was said. Well, what's interesting is who has the Deuteronomy 19.21 passage? Oh, Jim does back there. In Deuteronomy 19.21, it starts off by saying, show no pity. And I'll have him read it here and I'll comment on that. Verse 21, thus you shall not show pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Great. So remember, that's in the corporate setting of Israel, the covenant people of God as a nation. Their legal, their enforcement of the law was to be such that they showed no partiality, no pity. They exacted the law. Okay, and that's what we should expect from our rulers today. What was happening were the individual Jews took that principle and they didn't think that they could actually show pity or mercy to one another on a, in, in daily life. You, you see what I'm saying? So they would take Deuteronomy 19.21, and if they were wronged at all, they wouldn't show mercy. An eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, show no pity. That was the idea. So Jesus is correcting their misunderstanding. They're taking what was at the corporate level, they're bringing it to themselves in their daily lives, And he's saying, no, he says, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Let me stop there. This whole section here is set up in the courtroom. This slapping can only occur if it's on the right cheek by a backhand of the right hand. And so it's about insult, not physical assault. And the reason I point that out is it's not, okay, the the criminal breaks into your home, and he beats up grandpa, and then you take grandma and you say, well, here's grandma. You know, turn the other cheek, right? Okay, that's, that's not what's being stated, okay? Because what he's talking about is what's happening in the courtroom. And there's a specific reason why he's talking about what's happening in the courtroom. Because the courtroom was about shame. And in a shame-honor society, what he's talking about is different cases here of being shamed. And you're going to be the type now who is a follower of Jesus Christ who's willing to take upon shame upon himself because your Lord did. Because you've been forgiven much, you're going to forgive. But it doesn't mean that the United States government is evil because it went after Saddam Hussein. It doesn't apply to that level, okay? They're to exact justice, just as the court... I mean, that's the role of government, is to restrain evil. The government does not bear the sword in vain, meaning they can use it. Paul said so. But what Jesus is saying in your personal life, you don't have to exact revenge. If someone backs into your car, you don't have to slash their tires. Okay? You don't have to do that. That's what he's talking about. All right? So that's what I think is going on here. So he says, if anyone wants to sue you, and again, this proves that I think we're in the, in the courtroom here. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your uh, coat as, as well or also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, and of course, remember the Romans could do that. By law, they could, in fact, we saw that somebody carried Christ's cross, didn't they? And that was the Roman law. And that would have really, really been a pet peeve to the Jews. Because here you have the pagans telling them by law that they had to go a mile with them. Well, Jesus is saying, if you're insulted that bad, go with him too. Why? Because you're going to be the, the eschatological people of God. Your reward isn't here and now. It's in the life to come. And so you're, you're not going to go tit for tat. You're not going to be the petty people of life but you're going to take insult and humiliation for my sake and you're going to repay evil with good. Okay, and so that's the idea that's going on here. But don't take that to the macro level and say, 
a government is evil if they go to war with their enemies. They're not. Okay? The role of government is to restrain evil. Our role as citizens, as citizens of the kingdom, is to demonstrate Christ-like behavior. I think that's what Jesus is saying and Paul is saying the same thing. Therefore, man B, who was wronged by man A, should have never have brought it before the courts, the pagan courts especially, he should have suffered wrong. That was Paul's whole point. Just suffer wrong for the name of the Lord. He's going to make it up to you in the kingdom. You're going to live forever in a resurrected body. He'll make it up to you. That's the point. So why are you living like this is all there is? That's the point. So you don't have to go tit for tat. That's the, the thing. Okay, Number two, the Bible teaches eternal security, not eternal presumption. Notice in verse 11, Paul says, such were some of you. And the key is, were some of you. But you were what? You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. The point being, friends, is at some point, Paul is trusting that the majority of the Corinthians are saved, but they have to start acting like it. And friends, if people never act like they're saved... They're probably not. Not that we're saved by works, but those who love me, Jesus says, they obey my commandments. Okay? Again, I, I've mentioned this passage numerous times, but Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 is a beautiful passage because it summarizes the relationship between works and faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then it goes on into verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Again, in the sphere of Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand, again, election, that we should walk in them. So even the very works that we do, God gets the glory for it because it wasn't me doing it. It was God doing it through me. But yet my works are a necessary byproduct of my saving faith. And so the point is, friends, the Bible's teaching eternal security in this passage, or I should say throughout the scriptures, but I think this passage is about saying, no, not eternal presumption. It's a warning. Make no mistake about it, this is a a shot across the bow to the Corinthians to say, yes, you were sanctified, you were washed, you were justified, but there should be evidence of it. Or perhaps you're one like the Israelites who died in the wilderness. That's a real, real threat, isn't it? So yes, if you're truly God's elect, you will persevere and God will enable you to persevere until the end. But if we act like we're still in the world, perhaps it's because we still are. And so that's a warning that we definitely see, I think, applicable in this passage as well. So with that, I will be quiet. I'll take the next 10 minutes for your questions and comments. Larry. Stop me if you know where I'm going with this, but going back to the beginning where you talked about uh, where it says uh, dare to go to the law before the unrighteous and before the saints. Yep. Okay. Uh, If you know where I'm going with this, stop me, and you can go ahead and answer. But, you know, over in England, the Muslims uh, wanted to institute Sharia law right along with British law. Now, if someone was to look at this verse and say, well, aren't you Christians trying to bring about something in a Sharia-like fashion? Mm. Uh, how would you answer that question? Yeah, first of all, I would answer it this way. It's, it's a, there's a huge category distinction between what the Muslims are trying and what Christians are trying to do. Islamic, the Islamic faith, by definition, is a political one. Okay, so they want to take their Sharia and apply it to you by force. And it doesn't matter who you are. You're the infidel or you're Muslim. Sharia law applies to you. What Paul is simply saying is we preach the gospel and by God's grace, people become believers. They become part of a corporate body. And so what we're saying is, or what Paul is saying is, when matters come up within the church, 
they should be adjudicated within the church. In other words, we're not trying to say the rest of you out here in St. Louis Park, you come to Twin City Fellowship and you're going to sit under our law or you know, our bylaws or whatever. No, we're not saying that. What we're saying is if there's a problem within the church, it behooves us to handle it ourselves so we don't bring disrespect upon the, uh, the name of our Lord. That's the idea. So the Muslims, they are taking their Sharia by the sword and imposing it upon everyone. You and I are preaching the gospel. By God's grace, people become part of the body. And by God's grace, they settle their disputes among themselves because we're different than the world. We think differently. We're, we're sanctified. That idea. You see the difference? Yeah. In verse 11, it talks about being washed, sanctified, and justified. Yeah. And uh, definitely washed and justified refer to something that happens when you're first saved. Sure. But sanctified usually is thought about something that happens after you're saved. But there is a sense in which some people are sanctified at the time of their sanctification. Would you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, again, Tom, um, sanctification is often used in two different ways. Typically, when it's in the past tense, like this is an aorist, typically what's being stated here is that it's, it's the idea that you were set apart. And when were you set apart? Well, it was before the foundation of the world. You were set apart as holy. And so it's different than the process of sanctification, whereby you become more like Christ as you sit under the means of grace. So this sanctified, what Paul is saying is he's talking about things that have happened in the past to these people. And the implication is that God has done them all. Does that make sense? And so the sanctification there isn't the process, but it was the initial. That's why I call it election, okay? Because they were set apart as holy vessels unto the Lord. They were put aside. In um, the term hagias, holy one, set apart. That's the notion of God being holy. He's different. He's set apart. He's not part of the profane in the mundane things of life. He's high and exalted. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is set apart from the world. And so when you were sanctified initially, you were set apart for his purposes. You were put in a special location. That's how I always think of it. So that's what's going on there. And the idea, yeah, you're right, washed you know, there might be the implication of regeneration there. The idea that you were washed like the great promise in Jeremiah 31, that God would sprinkle new water upon us and we would be clean, or um, Ezekiel 36 and so forth. So of the new covenant. And so that's probably at, in view there. And then, of course, the justification is a thing that happens once in a person's life in a point in time. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Okay? But the reason why he became a believer is because he at one time was sanctified. He was set apart by the Lord. He was chosen before the foundation of the world. And he was regenerated so that he could perceive and believe the gospel as well. So, yeah, I don't know if that is answering the question. I think it, that there's almost a sense in which regeneration and, and, and sanctification in, at, the time of, uh, at the time of salvation are almost equated here or, 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 or put in a parallel position. Okay. You're more saying specifically? Just, more than just election. In other words, something that happens when you're exactly when you're saved. Sure. Yeah, I don't know if I'm speaking past you, but I just think that this passage is probably about things that happened in the past for them. And, and therefore, of course, sanctification occurs and starts to occur. That is the process when you're regenerate, when you're converted. Okay, that process starts. But I would contend here that Paul isn't talking about the process. He's talking about the act. Yeah. So good questions, though. How far do you take your position 
when you're dealing with somebody that is purported to be a Christian that comes and does work at your house, yeah. they do a garbage job and stand with it. They're not going to fix it. You're stuck with it. Yeah. I, that's a great point. In fact, I, I tell you, it, it's, it's tough because are they really a believer? Are they really a brother? I'll just give you how I've handled this in a different setting, but it's similar. At the seminary that I was involved with, I didn't go to Laron Schultz privately. He was a teacher. He was a heretic. He was in the emerging church. Well, people would say, well, what about Matthew 18? Well, I would say, yeah, but it says if a brother sins against you. I don't think Schultz is a brother, okay? Um, The point is sometimes we don't know. And again, I don't have a clear-cut solution for you other than I think it's always best to handle the situation, you know, among yourselves if you can. But I think in our society, being that the, pro- the person isn't regenerate, more than likely, you can take them before the courts and have redress. That's an important subject, actually, because remember, and don't anybody confuse what I'm saying here, Paul is talking about two Christians who are having a dispute among themselves. Okay, it's, He's not giving you a principle, this is how you should necessarily act in the world with unbelievers. Okay, So, yeah, that, it gets to be a sticky area. Are they really believers or not? Certainly, if you live this principle with the unbelievers, you'll be broke in no time. <laughs> okay, you'll have nothing because they'll take everything you've got. So he's not teaching that. He's talking about bringing disrepute upon the congregation. So I wish I could give you more than that. It's a tough call. It takes some wisdom, I think. And Yeah, I got a question about verse 2. Oh, yeah. I'm just kind of wondering. Uh, it says that the saints will judge the world. Yeah. That would be us. That's in a eschatological, how do you say, eschatological yeah. sense, I suppose. Yep. Is it, are they talking about the millennium or, or what? Yeah, that, that would all be tied in there. The idea is that you and I, being that we're in the camp of Christ, we're reigning with him. What he does is appropriated to us by grace. And so in the millennial kingdom, remember, he will reign over the nations. And in fact, Uh recall in the end of Zechariah 14, if they don't come up to the Feast of Tabernacles, he'll solve that little problem by not sending rain upon their land, right? Um, So my point being is that in this rain, though, you and I apparently are going to have a role. Now, it's not explicitly stated that you're going to do this and that. In other words, the roles themselves and what you're going to do in that rain aren't necessarily foretold. The implication is Christ is reigning because you're his, you're reigning with him. And how that happens, I'm not sure. But but that would only be with the millennium, right? Not, well, not eternity or... Yeah, the, the idea then is when we go on into the New Jerusalem, mm-hmm. remember you have the very thick walls? And people a lot of times ask, well, why are the walls of Jerusalem, the New Jerusalem, so thick? I, I don't know for sure, but it's a really good indication that there are some who are in and some who are out. Right, And those who are in will never be molested or troubled again by those who are in the eternal lake of fire. And the point is, is when you are reigning with him in the new Jerusalem and you are partaking in that, you in, in some sense are reigning cosmically with your, with your Lord in the sense that no longer are you you're reigning over the enemies of God. That would be kind of the picture that I would have from the scriptures. So it doesn't mean that you're necessarily doing anything, but you're reigning with him in even the, um, in the eternal states. Yep. That's how I would see it. Does that make sense? Yeah. How do you define reigning exactly? I know. Well, it, it definitely, there is a political dimension to it. The idea that we're ruling, 
and we're reigning in the political sense with our Lord. That's part of the Davidic kingdom. The Davidic kingdom is coming. One of the things I tell people when I'm witnessing to them, especially at the club, is they'll tell me all the really wicked ideas they have, and I'll tell them, you're not going to like the millennial kingdom <laughs> because that's not how, that's not how it's going to be run. See, there's going to be, yeah, there's, there's going to be this great reversal. What's, what's true and beautiful and wonderful in the world's eyes is going to be inverted. It's going to be shown to be what's awful and horrible. Um, for instance, abortion. The, many people think that that is just, it's the greatest thing you can engage in is the act of abortion. We've heard people say that. That's a right. You have a right to murder your child. Well, take that up with Christ in the millennial kingdom. See how far that gets you. Um, it's, it's not going to happen. And so you're reigning with him in that sense. He will be the ultimate political ruler. It is a political rule. He it is a kingdom. It is a throne. It's over the nations, and we will be with him. And so, for all, and by the way, because a lot of us have a lot of angst of what's going on, that should give us great comfort. The true king and his kingdom is coming, and it will be a political rule. Yeah, that's, uh, I'm sorry, we have one more, uh, Bill, and then... Uh, well, I just had a comment uh, regarding this business of uh, uh, judging sin between Christians uh, as it relates to Dave. Uh, a classic example I'd like to give that actually happened, these are past examples, would be a latter-rain uh, heretic named Earl Pock. Okay. Uh, for decades, he had uh, committed adultery with various women in his church. Uh-huh. Women objected. Uh, Earl Pock himself would use the very arguments that you're using, well, shouldn't this remain within the church? Shouldn't you forgive and forget? So on and so forth. Well, eventually it wound up in civil court. Mm-hmm. As a result of these court trials, a DNA test uh, was ordered by the judge, and it was determined that Donnie Pock, who was supposed to be his nephew, was actually his son. So here, uh, <laughs> by taking it to civil court... Yeah. The the technology uh, was used to expose Earl Pock uh, way beyond anything that could have taken place w- within an ecclesiastical court. Yeah. Your comment? Yeah, my comment, that's a good thing. Uh, praise God. And that was never a church to begin with, those who sat under that man. They would break the definitions of the church sitting under a false teacher. Um, that's no church at all. And, and it was good that they were found out and exposed by the courts. Yeah, yeah that would be my comment. <laughs> So, yeah, well, with that, I'm sorry, um, I went overtime here. We got our goodies, and we'll see you guys upstairs for worship and the sermon.